right. Well, welcome to the Sylvester Stallone Fan Podcast Network. I got to be. I got to be clear. This is not Frank Stallone's. <laughs> <laughs> His fan podcast network. Yeah, I wonder how Frank Sloan's podcast is doing out there. His uh, network fans and uh, what have you. So shout out yeah, to Frank. Thousands of fans that he has, right? Across the world. This episode oh. that's coming up, they're going to be uh, highlighting his cameo in Rocky Two. Oh, <laughs> they're going to be devoting a whole three-hour episode to his cameo in Rocky Two. <laughs> it's Brian, Greg, and <laughs> and Rug. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm really excited today. Uh, Well, first, I'll introduce myself for anyone that's a first-time listener because they came on to this episode for the first time because they saw that we're doing The Expendables. I am Ryan. I host the podcast called Going the Distance, the Rocky Series and Creed podcast that is found on this same feed. So go look at the library. You'll see it. So far, I've covered Rockies 1 through 6 and Creed are all done. Our next season, season 8, will be Creed Part 2. Doug? part of uh the rocky minute podcast uh where we go through the rocky movies one minute at a time we have completed seasons one and two and are grinding our way through uh, season three but you can catch all of season one and at this point i think we've released half of season two on our new home at the sylvester sloan fan podcast network i'm craig uh i'm with the uh Slycast, which unfortunately we don't put out as much content as Ryan and Doug do. We have a lot of moving parts on our show, a lot of people involved, and a lot of busy people, including Mike Kunda, who who just started his excellent show from Pretender, Contender to Pretender. If you're missing Mike on a, on a podcast, check that out. But I'm keeping busy myself. I'm doing music, and I'm also doing a monthly podcast called Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims, which. You three bozos are all going to be on eventually at, at different points. Well, I'm recording with you as of this tomorrow. recording tomorrow. Yeah. I'm excited for that. I'm excited to guest on that podcast and talk Pulp Fiction and Quentin. And yeah, I'm actually geeking out a little bit about that. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. But yeah, best for last, quite frankly. Uh, we had this individual guest voice cameo recording on our Expendables 3 coverage because he was unable to make that actual live recording. We're very sincere when we said that Sean Malloy's recording was more succinct and well put together than our hour and a half of rambling of nothingness. And he's gonna he's guessing with us live. So we expect that same kind of caliber. Sean, why don't you introduce yourself, the podcast that you host on your own and yeah. Hey, thanks, guys. Uh, I really appreciate it. I, actually, I feel kind of like the outsider uh, jumping in on the boys club here. So, uh, so, th- <laughs> so you're one of the boys. Don't, don't you worry about it. <laughs> My name is Sean. I host I Must Break This podcast, which is the uh, the podcast that looks at the filmography of Gunnar Jensen himself, Dolph Lundgren. Doug has been on a couple episodes. Craig has been on a couple episodes. Ryan, you and I spoke. I got you penciled in. You're going to be uh, coming on. And uh, yeah, no, I'm really for I'm really uh, excited to be joining you guys for this one because not only was this film a love letter to the action genre, but this was Dolph Lundgren's return to the big screen. And I mean, he had pretty much been in direct-to-video purgatory from about 1993 up until this point. And guys, let me tell you, I have watched a lot of garbage leading up to... (laughs) Leading up to this moment here. And so 2010, when this came out, I mean, I don't think there's been a movie that I've been more excited for. Not just the fact that it was all these guys together, but the fact that it was Dolph Lundgren's return to the big screen. And so as a result, I've really been looking forward to uh, joining you guys for this one. It's funny because I feel like this episode, in a sense, I mean, if we're going to review The Expendables, it only makes sense that we do 
kind of like our own version of the Expendables, you know what I mean? Where we all come together. I got dibs on it now. I get to be Dolph Lundgren. I get to be Gunnar Jensen. I'll let you guys duke it out on which one of you gets to be Sylvester Stallone, okay? <laughs> Barney. But, <laughs> yeah. Barney, if that's his real name, which I caught on this go around watching when Church says to Barney, if that's your real name. I'm kind of glad that we watch these movies in almost reverse order because it really showcases how effing good this movie is compared to the other two. Oh. I mean, this is a legitimate good movie. If I'm putting together a Stallone top 10 like today, I'm pretty sure that The Expendables makes that list. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Does Eric Roberts belong in the Hall of Fame of bad guys? He's oh great. Or, or what? He is a fantastic bad guy. <laughs> yeah, well, I've read that Eric Roberts, he'll basically, he'll show up for anything. I mean, if, <laughs> if, the check clears, me. if the check clears, he will show up. He will do any role that is offered to him. And I've actually heard that he's actually a really good dude. I mean, I actually mailed my DVD cover of uh, Best of the Best to him, and he graciously signed it. Nice. I mailed it back to me. So he, he's a good dude. But yeah, kind of like Danny Trejo. As long as the check clears, you're going to get Eric Roberts for two days. I would think that you'd have to have a sense of humor when you kind of grow up in the shadow of a more famous other sibling. Uh, Julia Roberts is his sister. so But he was actually a thing before Julia Roberts was. So he imagine like if Sly was Sly, <laughs> but then Frank came in and his music career blew up. And then all of a sudden, like nobody gave a shit about Sly anymore. That's what happened with Eric Roberts. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't stand a chance when she came on the scene. <laughs> Like Frank Stallone may have gone in the other direction and kind of had sour grapes about it, but Eric Roberts, like he, he's as down to earth and, and friendly as Sean says, then you know more power to him. God bless him. Yeah, I don't think he's got Frank Stallone bitterness towards a sibling, and you you also don't see Eric riding the tailcoat of all of the uh, tweets or <laughs> Instagram videos or whatever. It's like, hey, look at me, I'm this, you know. He's on his way, man. You better lock your doors. I don't care. <laughs> wouldn't, that, wouldn't, that be, wouldn't that be something though? If when Sleeping with the Enemy or Pretty Woman or any of those movies that came out in the '90s, we found out that Eric Roberts was contributing music to the soundtracks <laughs> of those films. <laughs> That'd be awesome. That's I think we're, we're missing Eric Roberts' best performance ever, which was The Cable Guy. That's where, right. Oh, yeah. he, was, he, he played the Menendez brother or something like yeah. that. That's right. Oh. <laughs> so not only does he play a great villain, he's also got great comedic chops. Was, yeah, well, he was in that with Ben Stiller. Was he? Because Ben Stiller was one of the brothers, wasn't he? Stiller well, played the brother, was the, and then Eric Roberts played the dramatization. Oh, yeah, there was, uh, that's it was right. like the TV movie version that Eric Roberts played. Yeah. Well, welcome to the Cable Guy podcast. We, uh, <laughs> well, I'm really excited to have Sean here. And Sean, uh, right on air, I'll just ask for you to come on and guest host on one of the Creed Two episodes with my other co-host, because uh, as you very well know, and our listeners know, that Dolph has a huge role in Creed Part Two. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on his performance. Not now. We'll save it for the uh, Going the Distance podcast. But I want to hear your thoughts on Dolph's performance in Creed Two. Uh, when we get to that, and I think you would, you'd be a great addition uh, to hear your voice on some key scenes there. Craig, you brought up an excellent, excellent point. I thought the exact same thing. For whatever reason, we did the order that we did just because when we did the poll voting for these films, we just, I think we threw in Expendables 2 versus other films that maybe were part twos in a series. I can't quite remember, but definitely part three was done that way. We put Expendables 3 against Spy Kids 3 and uh, Escape Plan 3, I think. Did we do Escape Plan 3 yet? No, we haven't. Oh, no. Well. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> Anyways, so I actually, that's right. We thought Escape Plan 3 was going to win just because people love love it when we cover dumpster fires. So this uh, Expendables uh, 1 coverage it was not put up for a poll because we were just uh, wanted Sean on. Sean's like, man, I really wish I could be there. So we're like, let's just do it. It's our show. We're just going to do Expendables Part 1 and get it done. And I think we were all in the mood to kind of watch something that was well done and Craig again you hit the nail on the head that watching this I just watched it yesterday preparing again for this uh, episode yeah it's such a fun fantastic legitimate good action movie let's just credit right away Sly's directing yep I was going to say that we have to lead with that and it's it's something that was sorely missed from the sequels and I think once the Expendables the first one did the the level of business that it did I think Sly said, okay, I I can sit back now and sort of rest on my laurels and let other people do the heavy lifting. His direction adds such a great touch to this movie. And the other thing about this movie, and I mentioned it in, I think, in the part three coverage is you get to see the other members of this team, especially Jason Statham's character. He gets his own little arc. Mm. You almost think that they're like setting this up to like have Jason Statham carry it after Stallone rides into the sunset. You also get that great little moment where Sly and Jet Li break off and they have their little action sequence. It's a really good showcase for all the actors involved. And I think it really showcases how teams work as well. And and I think that's something that, that was missing in part two and clearly was missing in part three. I would agree with that, Craig. I guess I'm going to slightly differ from you. You know, the whole little subplot or story arc with Jason Statham's character, I think it would work if this film was a a TV series, at the very least a miniseries. Because, okay, yeah, it's cool that they're doing it, but on the other hand, it's a, what is it, an hour and 40 minutes or whatever, and they're given this little subplot to Statham's character, but then they give nothing to Jet Li's character. They really don't give anything to Randy Couture's character. Jet Li's character gets a little throwaway line about how he has a family. I need a raise. Why? I need more money for my son. I want to send him to a better school. Did Ying Yang get a family? I have no idea. You don't ask. I don't tell. Anyway. But then all the guys kind of joke about that. Like, what are you talking about, a family? And then that gets thrown away. And so I actually have a buddy. He did a uh, he did his own cut of this movie. And he actually lifted out everything with Charisma Carpenter, the, the girlfriend of Jason Statham. Because he was like, look, this really adds nothing to the movie. And so he wow. took it out. You but, get that great basketball court. That is a great. Fight yeah. scene, oh, that's a great. And that's actually something you are sacrificing. Interesting that maybe your buddy there uh, saw the Charisma Carpenter scenes. They were a little bit weird because I was actually kind of confused about the relationship in that he comes to the house with a ring, which. Lee, come on. Don't leave like this. Lee, I'm sorry. Things were good between us. I felt like you never cared about getting in my life or, or letting me into your stop. Yeah, sure, I did. No, not the way two people who are serious about each other do. You know, I, I've known you for over a year and a half, and I don't even know what you do for a living. What's the matter? When I'm here, I'm with you. That matters. That matters. But when you're here, you're not really here. Okay? Uh, you don't talk to me. You don't open up to me. I have no idea what you're feeling. You bring me presents. They're beautiful presents, but I want you. You're a good man. I love you, but... Lee, I'm sorry. Please tell me you understand what I'm saying. You have to understand. I understand. You take care. Take care. <laughs> you know, he was gone for a month doing his mission. She doesn't really know what he does for work. Like, he didn't even have enough... 
decent courtesy to lie about what he did. He just says, I'm not going to tell you what I do, which is odd, yeah. you know. <laughs> she goes, I don't even know what you do. We've been together for a year and a half. I don't even know what you do for work. And I would be concerned, too, if I was a father to the daughter. Like, you don't know what your boyfriend does. It's kind of weird. And he seems to have a motorcycle and all these uh, toys. It was the most weakest part of the film was their dialogue and their relationship. Dot, dot, dot. That basketball court scene, I guess you could have done it some other way. Like, when he beats up the jerk who hit the girl, that's always fun to watch. And what a great fight sequence. Jason Statham, incredible physical actor. What was he when the guy's in the air and he hits him down on the ground again? I remember seeing that in the theaters, the role, like, whoa! That's one hit that you're like, how did they fake that? It might be the, the way the camera angle was. You know, the sound design, I mean, everything. I do get that point, Sean. And the movie would probably be stronger without that unnecessary thread but i also think that that's something that sets this movie apart from the other ones if you look at the jason statham scenes in this movie you care about that character whereas in part three you don't care about ronda rousey i mean there's no other way to to put it or glenn powell or <laughs> it's really wow. the, the, the whole job. the whole new breed that that you don't care about and also we came right off of that pg-13 rating in expendables 3 now we're back to the original the hard r the exploding bodies i had no choice i i have both blu-rays i have theatrical cut and i also bought the director's cut which i highly 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 recommend the director's cut it's a better film and just i just moved i've still got a couple of moving boxes behind me and i couldn't find the blu-rays in time to watch so i Watched it uh, through a streaming service yesterday, which happened to be a <laughs> the director's cut. So it's an hour and 53 minutes long. The theatrical cut is an hour and 43. So it's, it's, there's quite a bit more footage. I don't think any of my comments are going to be that different than what if you saw the theatrical versus the uh, director's. But I'll just say the director's cut is an amazing cut. The stuff that I remember that's different is right at the beginning, you have a bit of a, mon- over, uh, of a monologue by Sly, which I don't think is in the theatrical cut, where he talks about they live in the shadows or something like that. We are the shadows. And the smoke in your eyes. We are the ghosts. That hide. And then the uh, the airplane scene at the beginning after their first mission is a little bit different. It's a little bit more montage, drawn out, kind of like a bluesy slow music. And then the final battle at the end, that big battle at the end, they had this like new age metal song playing or whatever. I don't know how to describe Diamond it. Eyes. Oh, is that Diamond what? Eyes okay. by Shine Down. Yeah, that, that was the song that was actually in the trailer. Okay. It was kind of fun to hear that song being played while they're doing and then it then it morphed into the uh, soundtrack of the film. But it was like, oh yeah, I forgot about this. It was actually kind of a fun little sequence of them just like explosions, bolts, and Brian Tyler did the music for this, right? He's yes. been Sly's guy. I did notice during that last sort of siege on the island that I heard hints of the stuff that he did for the two Rambo films. Interesting. And I, and I wonder if that was he he didn't think that he was gonna really be scoring that sequence. And then Sly was like, yeah, they're not going to use the Shy Down song, so you got to come up with something. Oh, maybe. <laughs> For a concept like this film that it is, okay, all these action stars together in one movie, I feel like a concept like that alone needs a score, needs a signature score that you can hum in your head or whatever. I remember the score. I mean, that dun 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 <laughs>
I remember that. And it, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's as iconic as Rambo, for that matter, or Rocky, or even, but it works and it, it really brings it for those scenes. He's one of the more memorable score guys when I see his name because it seems like he's more of a throwback to sort of what Jerry Goldsmith did. He'll get really orchestral, but he'll also get really percussive and, and into that area mm-hmm. of things. So anytime I see his name, I get interested in seeing what he's going to do. It's funny you mentioned uh, Jerry Goldsmith, Craig, because I had the same kind of feeling that it's harkening back to all those the old 80s action films that are like surrounded in a a military kind of setting. They have that march type of music. Yeah, it definitely brought me back to that kind of uh, era. It's a very good soundtrack. It's got that very heavy oomph in its orchestra. It's a great action uh, soundtrack. It's a well-done movie, guys. At the end of the day, this is not a dumpster fire. This is a... Barn burner. This is a great. Uh, <laughs> this is a great fun action film. We loved Expendables too. I think. I think the weakest one we talked about, of course, is Expendables three. And what was missing from three had nothing to do with the direction. I think the direction style was good. I think Patrick Hughes did a good job with the direction. I think he did a good job wrangling the actors. We, we said it before a hundred times. It was the new crew, kind of taken away from the old crew. And part two, of course, I just tip my hat to Jean Claude for being the greatest villain of the trilogy. However, part one is a real showcase of the original uh, kind of Expendables crew. Yeah, the Statham-Stallone relationship was fun to watch when they're kind of talking about relationship talk with each other. Now, that's the point. Yeah, you think you know someone, and you truly do not. Aren't you the guy who said the man who best gets along with women is the man who can get along without them? Oh, no, no, you're so not listening. This is, I'm talking about when you give all the control right. to the woman. You relinquish the power. Right. You give it all to the girl. Right. Right at that very moment is the time that she will tear out your heart. Right. She, yeah, she'll screw the milkman, she'll get pregnant with a stranger. I'm telling you, it's exactly what's happening, and it's repeating itself every relationship I have. It's the same. Truthfully, she wasn't your favorite. Well, it wasn't finished. Look, enjoy your freedom. Yeah, you wait till it happens to you. It has. So it'd be interesting, Sean, to see what your friend cut out there because there was a lot of there's a lot of talk that Statham had, at least in the director's cut, where he's talking about his relationship with his girl. That's kind of an ongoing gag throughout the film. So it'd be interesting yeah. to see. So I've seen this multiple times, but in watching it again, the big reason why they gave Statham's character so much to do, if you look at the year this was not so much the year it came out, but the year that it was made, Statham was like the leading action guy in the genre. Stallone was basically kind of slowly on a comeback. Lundgren, he was he was in the direct-to-video era, if you will. But all those other guys really weren't, I mean, Terry Crews, Randy Couture, they were still trying to kind of prove something. It makes sense from a marketing standpoint for Statham's character to really be the one who, maybe he's not the one running the show and leading the show, but he's the one who arguably, I think, gets the most to do in this film. What's interesting is how they basically sideline him for a good... 30 minutes or so in part two, if you remember in part two, when they I go think to it was, I think it was film and obligations, if I remember correctly. So they oh, made okay. they made the storyline seem like, you're putting me in this crappy side mission? Thing. I think that was an inside joke, but also written for the movie, because I think he had obligations where he couldn't be on set as much as he due to conflicts, because it's so hard to correlate all these guys' yeah. careers. That's my understanding. I mean, it makes sense, though. I mean, if you think about it, considering in the first Expendables movie, for the entire second act of the movie or so, it's pretty much the Stallone and Statham show. And then in in the second one, it's Statham and gets sidelined, and suddenly Dolph is given what much more to do in that second act of Expendables too. So is Terry Crews. So is Rand- Randy Couture. I have a few 
feelings about him. I don't even think he should be in this movie. But oh, just say know. no. Just say no. I don't want to mitigate his talents in the MMA field or in the octagon because he could. Bro, he would destroy him. all of us on his <laughs> knees with both hands behind his back. I but he's, he's not an action star. And I remember yeah, exactly. when this. I remember when this movie was shopped and when it was being marketed and promoted and everything. I mean, I was stoked. I don't think I've been more excited for a movie. Oh, yeah. Um, And this comes from someone who grew up with comic books in the 90s. So I was more stoked for this than I was the Avengers or any of that stuff. When it was announced, it was like, okay, Stallone, awesome. Statham, he's a guy. He's an action dude. Great. Jet Li, that works. And then if you remember, the fourth one that was announced was Dolph Lundgren. And so that one, for me, put this on a whole other level because it was like, okay, that's great. And then suddenly they started adding more cast members. They announced Randy Couture. And I remember thinking like, well, okay, he's he's a tough guy, but he's not an action star. Like, come on. And I think this goes back to what we saw in part three, that Sly, I think he was really ready to put all of his eggs in the MMA basket. I think he... Mm probably saw MMA as like the new boxing. That was sort of Sly's maybe idea of how to get different eyes on on his projects. He had an MMA fighter in Grudge Match, so that was around the same time. So he's definitely... He, I think he generally probably enjoys the sport and Ronda Rousey for part three. So he's definitely enjoyed having MMA. David Bautista have a background in fighting too? Well, I think he also had more traditional. What is that? Um, what's the martial arts competitions? Um, the Krav Maga, rather? Krav? No. Uh, yeah, maybe Krav Maga. I don't know. I don't know. Say, I don't know. Um, Taekwondo, Doug? Is it Taek Taekwondo? <laughs> but stay, but, uh, yeah, I think he did leave the WWE. Don't quote me on this, yeah. but I think he did leave the WWE and he did try MMA for a brief period. Mm. Yeah. But to stay on the MMA side of things. You see that in the fighting style towards the end of the movie. Sly's doing MMA right. moves, mm-hmm. and then you have that great fight, which is the only reason Randy Couture's in the movie is you get two Stone Cold Steve Austin fights, which is awesome. And the one with Randy and Stone Cold is a real good showcase for, for both of their abilities. I think that was put in there to be like, we have two wrestling guys going out there for this. But I also think it gives Stone Cold a great character arc too yeah. because he fights Sly, pretty much beats him. Yep. And then, you know, he goes to the final boss, which is Randy Couture, which is kind of cool. What I like about The Expendables is to kind of play to the real world with the art world in that, yes, uh, we know that Steve Austin is a sports entertainer. He's a wrestler. But to be that, you have to be physical. You have to be coordinated. You just can't be. It's scripted. But the entertainment is real and the jumps and the bumps and, oh, my, the things these guys go through, especially, of course, during the Mick Foley days and what have you. These guys the physicality were, of it, yeah. Oh, it's incredible what they do. And so – if you think about it, if you're an action film director and you've got to get some physical fights done for your film, would you hire me, you know, just because i got a pretty face? Or would you hire maybe Couture who can, like, I can take the bumps, I can take the hits, I got the grappling moves, it's the training to get them to do the fighting. Well, it's just like the Rocky films. You get a boxer or do you get an actor? Sometimes you can get a bit of both, but... With these action sequences at the end, at the end of the day, Couture was hired to do that fight with Austin. And it was a great – let's just talk about that fight there with the fire and the bumps and the slams and stuff. It's a it's a hell of a fight. And full credit to Steve Austin. He's really got a lot of – well, that's why he was so popular. He's got a lot of charisma on screen. He carries it even in the film. Well, it's funny. Me and Sean have had an offline conversation about Stone Cold probably earlier this month. The latest episode of Conversations at Jackrabbit Slim's – I sat down with a screenwriter named John Sullivan who wrote a really, really good 
a Stone Cold movie called Great Recoil. Interview, by the way. Great. Sorry. Oh, thank you. Yeah, great. Um, and he also wrote a movie for Antonio Banderas. So there's a huge Expendables connection there. Yeah. After Sean listened to that episode, we, we were sort of texting back and forth about Stone Cold's movie career. Is, Way too short lived. Yeah. And yeah. it's a shame because if you watch him in The Expendables, he's got the charisma. I mean, he was one of the biggest wrestling stars. If you look at popularity, Hulk Hogan, Stone Cold Steve Austin. No, in terms of asses and seats and and merchandise, I mean, how many of those skull shirts did you see? Or 316 um, or whatever. He holds his own with everybody on screen here. Maybe you credit some of that to, to Sly's directing again. You know, Sly knows how to work with actors. Mm-hmm. Just for the record, David Bautista did embark on an MMA stretch lasting one fight. <laughs> Oh, that he won. Oh, good for him. Yeah, but uh, he, he went on the top. And, uh, <laughs> he, yeah, he did. <laughs> he became a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu under tutelage of Caesar Gracie's, one of the famed Gracie family members. Yeah, going to be no rematch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to mess with him. So the question: We actually have one person in our YouTube chat. Like I was saying before, I put this on YouTube just so I have a backup recording. Uh, we we are being joined by a fellow named Drew. He's actually chiming in quite a bit here. So hi to Drew. Uh, he has a question that I think will lead to Sean to answer. Sean, did you feel that the Lundgren-Lee fight lived up to the hype? I love the Lundgren-Lee fight. That was one of the things that Stallone and, and Dolph Lundgren actually, they kind of spoiled early on when the, when the film was being shopped and when it was being uh, filmed and everything. That was one of the things that they kind of were like, oh yeah, Lundgren and Lee don't like each other. They get into it and everything. And that was one of the things where I, that I think maybe should have been left as a surprise to audiences. I think it's a great fight. I think if there's one thing about it that I don't like, there's way too much close-up shots. You don't really get to see Lundgren's style versus uh, Jet Li's fighting style. That was one of the slight disappointments. I will see, if you want to see what I think this fight should have been, and sadly wasn't, Dolph did a movie back in 2015 called Skin Trade, where he and Tony Jaa, I don't know if you guys know who Tony Jaa is, but Tony Jaa is protector, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he and Tony Jaa go at it, and the way that fight scene is filmed is what I feel like the fight scene here in Expendable should have been because there's lots of wide shots mm. and so you get to see the scope of that fight. The, the fight in Expendables 1 is because they're in such close quarters in any case. I would say check out the fight scene in Skin Trade. It's, it's pretty dope. One of the cool things about this is seeing how Jet Li's character, even the playing field, by drawing Gunner into spaces that he knew that like there were going to be low bars and stuff where his height would work against him. I thought that was a real cool character trait and sort of showed how his, how his character approaches evening the playing field when he needs to. Sean, you brought up the quick cuts and everything in the fight scene. This is one of those more recent action movies that have really wild camera moves during the fight sequences, quick cuts, shaky camera. So you can't really see the beginning to the end of the fight. There's very little choreography going on there except within those little frames and fighting like that drives me nuts. I want to see a nice choreographed fight. I'm in the middle. I see both points. I think it was just enough where it was entertaining just to see uh, Lundgren versus Lee. If you were to tell me 20 years ago, can you imagine or 20 or like in 1990, let's say it was 1993 and you're like to say, Hey, uh, well, I guess it would have to be 94 when lethal weapon four came out. And you say, Hey, you know, that see that jet Lee guy that you just saw for the first time on screen. Well, he's going to fight Dolph Lundgren in the film. I'm like what? <laughs> the fact that we're even seeing these combinations, you know, Austin versus Couture, Austin versus Sly and then Lee versus Lundgren. 
that what it reminded me of a little bit was having the Lee versus Lunger within the Expendables in fighting was a little bit of Avengers, speaking of Avengers, like Avengers Civil War. We, we know they're on the same team a little bit, but they're just kind of pissed off at each other. They have different ideals. And we get to see the superpowers used against each other instead of just against the, the common villains, so to speak. So it was cool to see these two trained fighters in their own right uh, have this... Uh, fight on screen but it could have been more I, I agree a little bit more lighting a little bit more i don't know why Sly did it that way because he is the director i don't know what his reasons were or maybe jet lee and lundgren had reasons why they did it that way it might be because of their ages they needed yeah. but why do that to the steve austin randy couture fight they're both physically i think it's just because yeah. it, it was a nighttime Able. filming but, but i hear you in defense of sly i also have to say that doug it's probably because the trend in filmmaking at the time is that's what they thought audiences wanted to see is that Jason Bourne style of filmmaking where it creates false excitement. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's bullshit. But it was a really, really popular technique. And I think it was one of those things where Sly was like, hey, I got to look I got to look like the other movies that people are going to see today. At its heart, at the core of this film is the gimmick. And the gimmick is, okay, we have a movie with all of these action stars together in one film. Can you believe it? Like that, th- that's it. I mean, that I feel like that's the gimmick of the film. I can't speak to uh, Stallone's mindset, but I can't help but wonder if he crafted a story purely based around that gimmick, where he didn't even really have a story per se. He just said, hey, I want to make a kick-ass, balls-to-the-wall, love-letter action movie with all of these guys in there, then when he got financing, when he got approval to do it, he was like, okay, well, let's come up with a story. Because the story itself is really, really thin. It's mm-hmm. really, really loose. There's really not a lot there. And I was, I was watching it again. I thought this from the beginning, but my latest viewing, guys, it really drove in. This movie is basically meta. If Stallone wanted to, he didn't really need to do a whole mercenaries on a mission type movie. He could have made it just a week in the life of Stallone meeting up with his action. Because, I mean, Stallone is basically playing Rambo, maybe a more level-headed version of Rambo. Dolph Lundgren is basically playing Andrew Scott from Universal Soldier. Statham is playing Jason Statham. I don't think Jason <laughs> Statham. <laughs> no, he, um, his he, range he, is limited. Yeah. yeah, but they're all playing themselves. They're all playing essentially characters that they've played before. And so that's kind of what I wonder is if Stallone was like, uh, we'll just, uh, men on a mission movie. They'll be mercenaries. Uh, go one of the easiest stories to write from an action perspective is the Magnificent Seven story where, you know, a group of outsiders is there to liberate a village, an oppressed village. So as thin as it might have been, it's an easy story to write. And I think it serves the movie because you don't have to figure out any intricacies in the plot. It's, it's a real simple point A to point B for this movie. It worked. I kind of like Sean's concept, though. I would have liked to have seen a, a more meta take on it in terms of like looking at the camera a little bit more and, and winking well and, uh, we get that well, that's part what the two. series became actually yeah. that's what the series <laughs> evolved into well yeah it did for part two so i think for the meta part we got that in spades in part two we talked about that in our review of that film because we talked about the one-liners i'll be back you've been back enough and <laughs> that kind of stuff happened but i will give credit to sly even though there was a little bit a little bit of a wink at the camera yes sir yes he's playing kind of a combination of cobra Eddie mixed with a uh, rambo 
yeah, you got all the character actors kind of playing the type. But to give credit to Sly and the tone of this film, it was still a dark film. It was still a gritty film, a guerrilla-style type film with some incredible action pieces. So even though it might have been a week of the camera, Sly just said at the same time, produced at the same time, we are going to do an action film. So it's not just enough to get these actors together. We're going to have a fun time. We're going to do some... I want to talk about a scene that I have gone back to YouTube just on a whim throughout the years. This came out 11 years ago, if you can believe it already, guys, this film. I have literally gone to YouTube. You know, I love that scene. I just want to watch that scene because I love the I love the sound effects. I love the visual effects. And I say to myself, Sly filmed this. This is so cool. Like, he did this shot. When they did the uh, fry and die, okay, that was the scene where they're in the airplane and Satan comes out in the front of the airplane. That was a legit stunt. That was no CGI. He's in the front of that aircraft, and they talked about mm-hmm. this, that there was some sort of, I forget, what the, I forget what was in the front, but that was a legit opening in the hole, and they actually talked about, can we do something with this hole in the front of the plane? So he, he climbed into that from inside the cabin, right? I'm looking at this amazing plane, then I thought, God, how much work can I do with it? But then I saw a man climb out of there, one of the workers, and I saw this hatch go. I said, wouldn't it be amazing if they actually, this benign seaplane is literally an air battleship. It's a gunship. Jason gets up there, crawls, that hatch opens up, completely unexpected. It cuts loose with 250 calibers, riddles the hell out of that dock, scares the soldiers, and then just when you think we're going to take off, I pull the switch, gas starts to come out, it's incredible. Jason pulls back, bleeds out, fires the flare. The entire dock ignites. All the enemy jumps into the water, and we just disappear into that great unknown. And that's how they came up with the idea that, yeah, I'll just poke my head up. And it's such a wicked shot of Statham with the shirt rippling in with the air. And he's firing the weapon down that dock of the people. And that music cues up and the revving of the engine that gets closer to that. that for the first time you're like oh wow that was a freaking amazing this that aerial shot and then you're like oh then the the gas and then stay turns around like oh my goodness it's just, the, do, 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 do. that's one of the greatest <laughs> action sequences of all time i put that right up there with the uh the t1000 uh, rick chase with the metal guy man i've watched that over and over again on youtube you remind me of my me and my little boy reenacting scenes from a movie. Like, dude, wasn't it so amazing when the one guy was like, you'll yes. never take me alive, and the other guy's like, blah, blah. <laughs> I was thinking that same thing. But is that, that like that's a kid what, describing well, his favorite scene? I'm a nerd at heart when it comes to Sly and the action films, and when they're good, yeah, boy, he, that's an impressive action sequence of actual no CGI. A real explosion, yeah. Real explosions. You can almost feel the heat from the screen. What do you guys think of the fry and die? Come on. Don't leave me hanging. I love it. I love it. I mean, I think, you know, now that you are mentioning it and talking about it, Ryan, I think it's important to note because if you look at a lot of the action movies that are made nowadays, they don't have the budgets 
that this film had. And you certainly don't get action sequences that look as polished and nice as this is. A lot of the films, actually, that Dolph Lundgren has done recently that have gone direct-to-video and whatnot, the genre, to an extent, is kind of dying in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to see... We don't see scenes like that anymore. So, yeah, I agree with you. When you see something like that, it's kind of like, wow, this is a movie. This is a real movie here. But a lot of the stuff that you see filmed nowadays... They don't have the budgets. They don't have the shooting time to effectively and properly do it. And so what you get is a shell of what could have been, sadly. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's a dope shot. It illustrates the cool sort of shorthand the two characters have with each other. And it really shows that they've been working together because he's able to use that, what, fry and die. So, obviously, it's something they've done before. So, like, instantly, you know, it's a shorthand. Statham knows what he's got to do. I thought that was also a really quick way to sort of illustrate that these guys have worked together a lot. They've got this shorthand developed and they're really a team. I do feel bad for the guy that at immigration, he does pull his gun. So obviously he was going to shoot Barney, but Barney takes way too much pleasure in killing that guy where you look nervous. Come on, I know you're a mercenary and stuff and this guy's probably questionable, I don't think he was army. I think that was like this dude's job before the army took over. No, I will. I will defend Barney's actions for killing. <laughs> this guy has led in probably uh, sex trafficking. Uh, he's probably done some pretty. You got the feeling this guy did not. He was not legit behind the counter. Who went in and out of the country with certain exports? So that's my reason behind that. This guy was a creep because he had a kind of a unsaid language with the other two army guys there, like kind of messing with these American tourists. So you kind of, this guy was a creep. I love how they had the cover on that plane. They had the conserve wildlife or whatever yeah. sticker that they had thrown on the side of it. <laughs> and speaking of the plane, incredible footage of this plane. What an, like a very impressive piece of aircraft. The cinematography and the filming of the plane, the above the air shots, below the plane, and the plane's going to the water when it lands. I don't know. They really showcase this plane in this set part one. I just thought, again, Sly's directing and cinematography team uh, really captured the aesthetics of this plane very well that never got well, captured it kinda, again. It kind of bums you out because if you think if this was made in the 80s, we would have gotten like the G.I. Joe size figures. You know, the Dolph one would have been a little bit bigger than everyone else. You know, and then you would have got the plane with all the accessories. Oh, man. Uh, you know, Jason Statham would have had the knife accessory pack or whatever. I don't think Doug really got to talk about this scene, though. Uh, I'm sorry. I was actually... <laughs> I was watching the uh, the Mickey Rourke monologue again. Going back to Mickey Rourke himself, they had him for like a day and a half because he was in between obligations himself. Iron Man 2. And he delivers this monologue about him and Barney being back in Bosnia. He starts tearing up in the middle of it, and he's saying that we don't stand for shit. And, and oh, my God. You remember that time we was up in Bosnia? We took down them Serb bad boys. All our guys were getting chopped up all around us and there was blood everywhere. I never thought I was gonna make it out of there. I don't know you did you didn't either. Yeah. Kind of feeling like dead too, you know. My head's all very, very black place. I don't believe in shit. Just goddamn Dracula black. Remember I got this bottle of you know, local shit they have over there, that Silovitz. I don't know what. I think that's what it was called. And I ain't feeling no pain now. And I come up on this, uh, I come up on this old wooden bridge and I see this 
see this I see this woman standing there, you know, and she's, uh, uh, I stepped out and she saw me and she's just looking right in, right in my eyes and I was looking right in her eyes. And I knew what she was gonna do. She looked at me and I knew she was gonna jump. You know what I did, man? I just turned around and I kept walking until I heard that splash. She was gone, and after, after taking all them lives, here was one that I could have saved, but I didn't. And uh, what I realized later on was, uh, if I'd have saved that woman, I might have, I don't know, saved what was left of my soul, you know? In a movie where it's wall-to-wall action and comedic moments that you want out of an action movie, you got this couple of minute part where it's just it's just a straight heartfelt monologue that c- kind of comes out of nowhere. If you want a scene that gets inside you, it's this one. You walk away, yeah, you remember like the explosions and the fights and everything else, but this monologue sticks. It was stuck with me. It was no, like his shoeshine yeah. moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah for exactly. Sure. For sure. It's one of those things where it's both frustrating to see Mickey perform this and to see him crap out his career before this too. It's unfortunate you can see what he has in his tank still, and for whatever. And then again with the wrestler, I think it was around the same time. So you see that Mickey still has this in him, but you know, kind of wasted years with botched plastic surgery and boxing and and what have you. So it's unfortunate that we, it's fortunate that we see this coming from Mickey and. It's also kind of frustrating to watch this coming from Mickey when you could have realized how much more he could have given us as moviegoers with other films. It does serve a very important part of the film. So I know Sly wrote this film, and he uh, directed it, of course. So he would have been directing Mickey. I don't know what their conversations were. but I wonder what their conversation was. Hey, okay, Mickey, this is your scene. Sly goes, I wrote this piece of dialogue for you. Mickey, I want want you to cry. I want you to choke up. I'm kind of curious what the direction was by Sly, or he probably just let Mickey do whatever he I think Mike, I think Mickey said, I got this. This is the end of peak Mickey Rourke in terms of his popularity, I think his acting ability, and his face. After this, he went down a road that I have no idea where he, he's gone, it's and I'm not going to shame it's anybody. Men- well, it's probably mental health issues on, on top of everything. Yeah. Else, yeah. But, I mean, he was coming off The Wrestler, yeah. Um, yeah. which he got nominated for the huge, Oscar for. Huge and, comeback piece for him. Yeah. Say what you want about Iron Man 2. It had its problems because it was made in the middle of a – or coming up against a writer's strike. Mm. The Iron Man movies are sort of like the Expendables where they decline in quality as you go along. Mm-hmm. Sly knew just to get out of Mickey Rourke's way. You know, they probably – I bet you they had a quick conversation maybe the night before. Like Sly was like, hey, you know, these are the beats we need to hit. Mickey Rourke was like, okay, let's go to the bar, have some drinks. And then the next day right. I think they just banged it out. Yeah. There aren't too, too many cuts in it, right? It's, it's straight straight up a one shot. It's a one yeah. shot model. It's on his face the whole time and, and close in on his face the whole time. He, and he's tearing up. He's actually got some drool coming down his lip. The acting and the emotion is, I would say it feels out of place, but you're right. It's almost like an Oscar-worthy performance in an action film, which is very odd to see that type of, we get that with First Blood, like Craig was saying at the end. So this is kind of like the shoeshine moment in Expendables, exactly a great metaphor. Uh, but it serves a point in the story 
The Expendables at this time as a team, they had become a little bit blackened. They had become a little bit disingenuous with their motives to get money. They were mercs for hire. They didn't really have a moral code. And Mickey Rourke's character, Tool, Tool saying, I'm lost. My demons have overtaken me. My life, like I, I've lost myself to the demons, but there's hope for you. Because he says, that woman jumped off the bridge. Instead of me, a great line where he says, you know, of all the people I've killed, I had a chance to save somebody. And I turned my back on that woman. I heard her jump into the river. He goes, I could have saved her. I could have talked her down from the bridge. But I did. I turned my back on her because I just it's uncomfortable to meet somebody there. He, so he's telling Barney, look, you left the girl behind or somebody in distress on that island. And you're going to turn your back on her because the money's not there anymore. Barney had a kind of a come to Jesus moment where he's like, yeah, I don't want to lose my soul. I see my friend here who's lost himself. And I have a chance to turn my life around. It's not about the money. Now it's about the morally right thing to do. So the team went back without the money. A lot of great stories that we don't see that happened before this film even of The Expendables where I guess they had lost their own reasons of being good. They just started doing things for the money. The team corrects that course. That's why the future films are, I would say they're more maybe jovial or maybe more because now that you could argue they kind of got their moral mojo back after this moment. But that's one of the huge problems with the series is, okay, these are tough guy mercenaries, okay, who take on nasty, dirty jobs for money. At about Expendables 2 and then definitely in Expendables 3, it kind of became like this weird high school clique type social club kind of thing to where, like, are you guys mercenaries or is this like a geriatric golf club kind of thing? Okay, with my podcast, obviously, we look at all the films of Dolph Lundgren and many, many have not seen all the films that Dolph has done. That's one of the things that I wish this script had done that it didn't, okay? Dolph did a movie back in 95. I would actually put it as one of his very best movies, and no one ever talks about it, called Men of War. So Men of War is amazing. It was actually written by John Sayles. Oh, um, wow. Amazing. Yeah, okay. it, it's amazing. But what Men of War does is what I feel Expendables should have done. And what it is, okay, it's basically in that one, Dolph is a leader of a, of a band of mercenaries, okay? They go to this island to do some uh, immoral deeds, and then Dolph's moral compass gets righted, and he realizes, look, I don't want to do this. And so what happens is his team of mercenaries gets fractured to where he leads the good guys in becoming the island's saviors, if you will. And then the other guys are in it for the money and the other guys come back to the island and a big war erupts. This movie has so many characters that I almost kind of wonder if it might've been more effective if Sly did something like that to where, okay, Sly basically says, all right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to save this island. And then you have members of his team who are saying, hey, wait a minute, we need the money. I think that would have been kind of compelling is if you had the team Stallone, Statham, and uh, Jet Li, okay, they're on the good guys. And then suddenly Dolph, Terry Crews, and Randy Couture, they're the bad guys suddenly working for Eric Roberts. And you have a full-on assault. Because if we want to go to the third act, that's the other issue, is that there are really no stakes all of these good guys live at the end of the movie. None of them are even injured. If you think about it, none of these guys even take a bullet. And so that's one thing that I kind of wonder. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Well, okay, well, slow down, but then I, they were injured. They were injured. I, I will be, uh, it, it's I, I'll push back. the series, though. But it's you're right. It's, series. it's an action film yeah. where the good guys, it seems like they're unscathed. But if you go actually go back and look at the fights, those bumps and stuff, and we, well, Sly was injured in real life taking that fight with Austin. Right. But, so, and well, I know I kind of went on different points, but yeah. I'll go to my first point, though. Yeah. Don't you think that would have been kind of cool if that would have made things a little tighter if they had this core team who gets split. And that could have led to some really cool marketing. Which team are you on? 
Team Lundgren or Team Stallone? You know what I mean? <laughs> That's what America, uh, yeah. Avengers Civil War did. So I agree with you. It was it was Captain America, actually. What did I say? Oh, sorry. My bad. My yeah. bad. Yeah, Which yeah, is basically on, Avengers. It life. was an Avengers you, film. You, yeah. We just mm-hmm. lost. How many people just stopped the podcast because you don't know your Marvel? Oh, well, excuse <laughs> me. Yeah, anyway. No, you can't make Terry Crews the bad guy, though. Terry Crews yeah. is just too. Okay. Terry Crews has his best scene in the entire series <laughs> yeah, yeah. when he's talking about the psychological aspect of weapons. The loudness of the, you know, the weapons he chooses and why he uses that shotgun. You know, the enemies are always been terrified of noise. Special shotguns. With this big boy spitting out 250 rounds a minute, you tell me who's tolerating that. You know what? I trust you. Don't you leave my girlfriend. Omaya, kaboom. When Amaya's prime was struck, she gets off the miniature warhead to arms itself. And when that happens, anything that gets in my lady's way becomes instant red sauce and jelly. The noise is as impactful as the, the damage the bullet will do psychologically. Like when they hear this gun, they're going to shit themselves. And that gives you a psychological edge. And I, I think that's a really underappreciated scene in, in this whole series is, and I think it's, it's the best acting moment that, that Terry Crews gets in the entire series. Interesting. And it was a great payoff too. When, when the gun was used and the moment when the expendables were pinned down, they're overwhelmed. That was during the fight with Austin and uh, uh, Sly. <laughs> they, do, 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 do. And, and there's that great <laughs> sequence where uh, Sly and Austin are on the ground mid fight. They both kind of look over. They just see this big messy black guy with a huge automatic <laughs> shotgun walking down the hallway about 30 feet away. It was yeah. a great shot. It's like, like almost like a monster from a creature movie. Yeah. Do, 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 do. And then he gets that great line where he says, remember this shit at Christmas. Yeah. Remember this shit at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. That's another one. It, like it's complete action movie to a T. Complete with the witty quips in between action set pieces. For some reason, all three expendable films suffer from this a little bit. The dialogue is always not always. It's often disjointed. I don't know how to describe it, but it seems like their quips and the way they speak to each other. I know it's supposed to be playful banter, but it seems scripted, which I know it sounds ironic because it's a scripted movie, but it just sometimes it doesn't seem natural, which is important when you're doing a film, no matter, look at First Blood. There was never a time during First Blood where I thought, well, that's kind of a scripted response by uh, the sheriff to uh, Sly's character, mm-hmm. uh, well, Rambo. Uh, like, I never once thought that because that's natural dialogue, well-written dialogue. So for whatever reason, Sly's a great at least a great writer of the Rocky films, but for some reason, I, I don't know what it is with the Expendable films, but the dialogue is disjointed. It doesn't quite flow, and the jokes don't land. It's there's, it's hard to explain. It's That's my biggest complaint, even with this film, was like, oh, some of the awkward humor just wasn't funny, and I don't know why they would think I, it's funny. I think a lot of that, in my opinion, Ryan, is because Sly did not write this movie with the intent for it to be taken seriously like First Blood. Again, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, but the, the film is a gimmick. And the entire movie was built on the idea of a gimmick of getting all these guys together. There's a scene in Expendables 2 where they ask Stallone for a pen. 
and he pulls out his pen and has skulls on it. And they're like, is there anything you have that doesn't have skulls on it? How's that funny? Like what? <laughs> well, that's <laughs> what not, that, 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 yeah, I admit that's not necessarily funny. The bad guys, their script, their dialogue flowed. Their conversations had more of a flow. Mm-hmm. Eric Roberts, that scene where he, when he's talking to the captured general's daughter, I don't hit people, but my uh, goon will hit, you know, my goon will hit a woman. Sandra. Short for Alexander, which is Latin for defender of mankind, and bingo, here you are. Now that's energy. You're not following that. And I know you're probably not, illiteracy being 98% in your country. Try following this. A very wise dead man once told me that a real man never strikes a woman. You push them if you have to, but you never strike them. This man, however, does not share that moral dilemma. So the question, Sandra, why were the Americans here? Their scenes with the quote-unquote bad guys and their conversations and their dialogue did flow. But for some reason, the Expendables dialogue, their interaction, not all the time, but especially when it comes to the quips, they just didn't land. Mm-hmm. Maybe Sly's not a great humorist when it comes to actually writing that other than his... I mean, also to back up Sean's point, you could tell this was written completely tongue-in-cheek. Maybe they don't punch up the villain's dialogue because... You don't want to like them. You don't want to find anything endearing about them, even if it is like a beat of comedy. You don't want to, you know, maybe, you know, to draw the line between good and evil in this one. If Stallone had intended this to be taken seriously, then he would have given the team of the Expendables more stakes and Mm -hmm. we would have seen more of a threat because you mentioned it earlier, Doug. I mean, this is Stallone's version of Magnificent Seven. And if you look at a film like Magnificent Seven, or even a film like The Dirty Dozen, for example, you have a group of men on a mission movie, but there are casualties in the end. Okay, not all of the seven survive, not all of the Dirty Dozen survive. And in this film, for it being such a difficult mission, they all survive at the end, and they're all Mm -hmm. hanging out at that bar at the end. So, I mean, I go back and forth on it. On one hand, okay, if he meant it to be tongue-in-cheek and silly, then of course he's going to have all the characters live at the end. But then there are some other scenes that are just so violent that it's like, well, how hard was this mission? Or maybe these guys are just so amazingly good at what they do that they right. all survive the mission in the end. It was Sly knew that if this movie did well, there would be sequels. And he's like, yeah. how can I take food off Terry Cruz's table? Uh, you know, even with Dolph, you know, Dolph was supposed to die in this movie. Yeah. And at some point they're like, well, if there's a sequel, we're going to need Gunner. So I think that was what it was. I mean, you understand it from a business perspective that imagine right. like Sly being like, oh, sorry, you're not going to be around for the sequel because you die in this movie. Well, that's um, we know one thing about Stallone is he's loyal to his guys. Right. For sure. So, yeah, that, that's a good point. Also, Craig. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I, I do want to go back to what you were saying about the, the villain in the dialogue. And, and I might have missed it because I stepped out for a minute. I think Eric Roberts has a really good sort of he's got like the whiny villain line at the end where he completely misses the point of why the team came back, you know, where, you know, you get Barney saying, I came back for her dipshit. Drop the weapons or I'll put a bullet through her eye. Don't test me. Shut up or I'll kill you. The agency parasites hired you, didn't they? I'd have paid you twice as much to go fishing. 
you'd have to think I'm pretty freaking stupid to surrender to the agency. Why would I do that? I created this. I made it all happen. And then they wanted me out. Why? Because I saw the big picture. Unlike people like her father, you, the agency, you see life through a freaking keyhole because you let emotions cloud your judgment. Emotions are the cancer of the intellect. Stop walking. But what about me and you? We're both the same. We're both mercenaries. We're both dead inside. Why the hell did you come after me? Let it come after you, dipshit. I came for her. He's got this frustration where he's, hey, you know, I was part of this and then the government took it away from me. It was kind of really, I think Eric Roberts played it really well, where the whiny villain, he's, hey, what about me? You know, uh, you know, I got screwed here, too. That's a really well-written scene. I mean, it's a little, I think it's a little heavy-handed. Barney says, I came back for her, but I think it's kind of really on the nose. But that's a good scene. And that's a scene I don't think you'd get in a lot of your by-the-book action movies. And, and I think that's kind of what Sly brings to the genre. Are we to believe that Ying Yang, Jet Li's character, Sh- he's... Sean, you're on mute. Sorry. Oh. Sorry about that. Oh. You went to say something, you were on mute. Oh, I, I, I wasn't looking at the screen. I just started talking. No, perfectly, they'll dug and chart to my talk to let, to let me know that I <laughs> didn't actually step on Sean, that he was muted naturally. Now I've got to like edit that disaster. Okay. Just leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm just joking. Uh, I'll just finish this and Sean, yeah, jump in. Was Ying Yang number three? Because it seems like he was in on these uh, decision-making stuff. I noticed, I didn't notice that until, the, again, watching this again after the other two. It was like, oh, yeah, he was in it like, yeah, let's make this happen. It was kind of like him, Statham, and Stallone's character. They were they seemed to be the top three guys. Like They were, they were looking for Ying Yang's input, which I thought was a nice little touch. And then Ying Yang came in the truck to talk to Barney, which led to what we've talked about already. But that whole uh, – so Ying Yang was at least shown in the first film – one of the top leaders of the of the group. Maybe that was maybe that was some of the jealousy that Gunner had with Ying. Maybe he felt he should have been up there. It was never really explored, but you could uh, you could insinuate it. Well, when this film was uh, marketed, when when it was being shopped around at, at the AFM, I believe it was back in two thousand eight. That is how it was shopped around. It was I remember the poster actually when this hit message boards and internet. It was it was big, but it was Stallone, Statham, Lee. The Expendables. Mm. And those were the top three. And then it waited, it was about a month or so of getting interest with those top three leads. Then suddenly, then you got Lundgren. And then that's when suddenly it seemed not even a week went by where someone new wasn't added to the cast. But yeah, I agree with you, uh, Ryan. I think that was, I think that was the initial intent was before all these other guys came on board, Stallone intended this movie to be pretty much him and those other two guys, uh, Statham and Lee. Because if you think about it, around 2007, 2008, Statham and uh, Jet Li had done that movie War together mm, for right. Lionsgate. They were pretty big at the time. Yeah, I mean, if you look at internationally what the three of those guys could do, mm-hmm. um, Jet Li, huge in the Asian market, Stallone, huge overseas still, and Statham, a viable star in the U.S. From a business standpoint, it makes sense as well. Mm-hmm. Stallone is, if nothing, he's a smart businessman. Sure. He is. I, I don't think Sly Water really took off. Did he have sly water? Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know what? You get it good? Your drink, just quickly while you have it, did that sly water? 
That's now, glacial water. This, I do. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I, yes, it is. It is from Mount Rainier, and it's an unbelievable um, water. It's, you know, because when you think about it, the, the only good water, the best water in the world, is glacial water because it never touches the ground, never has to go through any aquifers, any purif purification. It's like, actually, this water is like maybe fell from the sky 20,000 years ago, rain formed. Uh, put into a glacier form and then slowly uh, being melted because it sits over a, a low burning uh, volcano. So it puts out about 20,000 gallons an hour of pure, pure water. I thought it's extraordinary. And people are willing to spend money on You have, I mean, to. It's, you have it's, to. It's amazing. Well, it, it, I, I've always said water is a new gold standard. You can't live without it. And uh, there's not m much of it around that's really good. I'm embarrassed to admit when I leave the country, I, I, I do, I, I, I brush my teeth with bottled water. I mean, I, I just... I think you, say you take your bathtub with you and you <laughs> fill, it, fill it up. <laughs> I'm soaking in slime, right? <laughs> um, all right, let me have these two right here. I'm not going to tell you what the other one is. This is a taste test. One is oh, sly, <laughs> and the yeah. other is a different water. Of course, I just had a mouthful of oregano, but it's okay. So everything's <laughs> going to taste Italian right now. Everything's going to taste You know like which pizza. one is which? You know which one is which? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely positive. Yeah. Oh my God. Which is sly. This could be, what did you do before I had the oregano here? <laughs> Somebody sold you oregano? <laughs> this is not. It's not? Yeah. That's not. That is sly right there. Totally. That's the better water? Are you serious? And guess who the other water is? Whatever it is, I wouldn't wash my socks in this. <laughs> now I can't wait to tell you what it is. What? Trump. Ice. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, Donald. I'm. Sorry. Oh. I didn't. Know. I love Donald. I'm sorry. Oh my God. Where are our bottles? I what guess I meant to say was not my socks. I, I would wash with my entire clothes. Boom, 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 boom. Now I got Rocky Seven. Here it is. Boom, boom. boom. <laughs> Oh my God, that is oh so classic. Oh my gosh, I didn't know it was his. Too wow. bad, man, he can take it, he's a big boy. He, he, he rumbles in the concrete jungle There was a major day. difference, though, I have to admit. <laughs> Before I moved cross country, I had a bottle of Sly Water that I think they gave out when they showed Rocky at the steps when they rededicated the statue at the oh, art museum. 2006? Oh. Yeah. Mike Kunda was there before we even knew each other. Wow. But they gave out bottles of Sly Water, and I drank it that day, and then I refilled it and sealed it back up. And unfortunately, it didn't make the cross-country move with me. You know, I mean, those are the hard decisions you have to make when you're loading oh, up Oh, man. Stuff. Did, like, he had a magazine, too. Water, he shared, really early on, he shared script pages from what became Rocky Balboa in that magazine. Right. I think that's... Yeah, it only lasted, if I remember right, it only lasted four issues. It lasted about as long as Gene Simmons' magazine. Gene Publishing's really magazine. hard. <laughs> the magazine. Yeah, publishing's really, really hard. Especially so you, now. You, yeah. Did, when you were carrying the water, uh, size water, did somebody bump into you and you go, oops, and they turned around and said, is that all you can say? <laughs> the toughest thing you can say is oops. <laughs> You're awful. Uh, well, it wasn't awful. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you can see it. Is that it? Sly water? water. You, can't, you probably can't see my phone. But oh, no. Is it bl blue and yellow? Uh -huh. Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. Oh, great. I'll Google that. That's funny. Did you guys see the theatrical cut? Because I'm just curious. Okay. The scene where the general's daughter, uh, played by, I forget her name, Isel or something like that. Something. Yeah. 
She she was 27 in the film, by the way. I just wanted to see what her age difference was between her and Sly's love interest. It was about 40 years, or about 30 yeah. years, 35 years. But I think, Sean, that's why they did what they did with Statham. They're like, hey, we're going to need a relationship angle in this movie because mm. for some reason you they feel they need them. Sly was like, I'm not going to be the old creeper that he became in other movies. That was probably the thing. They're like, hey, we've got Statham. He's young enough where we can have this sort of legitimate romance and not have it get creepy. Yeah, that's uh, that G- makes sense. Giselle, yeah, that uh, Giselle Itia. So she's a South American. I'm not sure which, maybe Mexican. I'm not sure which uh, country she's from, but she's. I don't. I don't even like the idea that they try to insinuate there was some sort of attraction between. Them. Look, hey, love has no age boundaries. I understand. She's 27. Sly was probably about 57 at the time. No, he would have been older. Uh, 11 yeah. years ago, he was 63. So it would have been his yeah. 63 to her 27. That's a pretty. Yeah. No, but but again, and we've talked about this on the show before. Is how old is Barney Ross supposed to be? I don't care. I, got, I don't care. <laughs> to me, I don't know. It's because because I got to say that Barney Ross and St- Stallone in this movie. This might be the the last time Stallone looked really really good on screen. I mean, Barney Ross looks great in this movie. Whatever weight Stallone came into this movie at was perfect. His face looked good. Well, that's what the Trench mentioned that in their little meeting in the church. He goes, oh, you lost weight. And then uh, Barney Ross you goes, gained you've it. gained weight. Big Barney Ross. Bigger Trent Mouse. What are you doing? Praying for Brooke. Could be. Are you been sick? You lost weight? Really? Now, whatever weight I lost, you found, pal. Which is, of course, that's the meta. That's the meta. Yeah. That whole scene is all meta between him and Bruce Willis. Yeah, and yeah. With the idea that Arnold is, you know, because he's a congressman at the time, a governor. So, of course, he's put on a little bit of weight because he's not doing action films. Sly did lose weight. And you see Sly without his shirt, which, again, is probably, is it the last time we saw it? Sorry. I totally, (laughs) thank you for bringing it up. When I saw this in the theaters in 2010, and I'm a huge Sly fan, of course, I thought, even after leaving the film, I thought those, minus the Expendables one, I thought those tattoos were for the film. Mm-hmm. I had no, no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. It was it, it was well after. I don't even know when I discovered it. It's like what? Those were real. Those were his tattoos. <laughs> that was Sly because he doesn't do. Well, how many films does he take off his shirt exposing his tattoo? He did it for Bolt, Bolt to the Head. He did it. This was the first film where he exposed his shirtless body with the tattoos. Look, I'm a fan, but I'm not like a creepy fan. I didn't know that he had tattooed himself. When you saw this for the first time, did you know those were real tattoos? Doug, that's why you got your tattoos, right? That's why you I started inspired, getting tattoos. Because you were inspired really? by Bonnie Ross. And maybe that's your nickname. Is that your nickname, Barney? <laughs> I guess I was just naive to it. I, and so anyways, um, I think that was Sly's way of showing the world. Because they were pretty recent. Because I don't think he didn't have them for Rocky Balboa. And that was 2006. No, I, I, remember, I remember seeing him on TV in a tattoo chair getting tattooed. He is got them because one of, one of his tattoos is a picture of his wife, Jennifer Flavin. And I don't know exactly when they got married, but he got it kind of um, mid '90s. Yeah, so I mean, I think he, he got it had to be early 2000s or so. But yeah, but Grudge Match, he had them all painted over when he did Grudge Match. They were all okay. I don't know what they used to paint over it, but, but he didn't uh, have them. And he didn't have them for Rocky Balboa. No, that was 2006. So in a four year span, he covered his body, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is fine. It was just weird that that age and stage. Good for him. That age and stage in his life. He's like, oh, I'm gonna tap myself up. 
Ryan, do you want to sort of dovetail into the big scene with Schwarzenegger, Willis, and Sly since you sort of referenced it? Well, we've talked about it a couple of times. Of course, when this happened on the big screen, I mean, it was amazing for us nerds to see. It's like the first time you see Batman and Superman on screen together. Let's be honest. It's like you dreamed of it your whole life. Finally, we're seeing the shared screen of Sly and Arnold as quick as it was. The only thing missing was instead of meeting at a uh, church, they should have just been meeting at a Planet Hollywood. Let's be honest. <laughs> that's too meta. Can you imagine? Hollywood. <laughs> but that's what that's what it was. No, you know, when, it's when, not when that it, bad. It wasn't that bad. No, it, it I mean, was, come on. When, when Schwarzenegger looks at Stallone and says, give this job to my friend, he loves playing in the jungle. Wink, yeah. wink. Only an idiot would do this job. How much? No, oh, like I said, I'm busy anyway. So give this job to my friend here. He loves playing in the jungle. Right? You know, Rambo. They should have just been meeting at a, at a Planet Hollywood. Well, if we're going to go that far, they should have just met at a Taco Bell with uh, Trench being the president of the United States. <laughs> Sly was extremely generous here because we've all talked about the rivalry those two had in the 80s and how you, what Schwarzenegger talked about, how he tricked Stallone into taking certain roles that were bad for his career. But I think Sly was really generous here because he basically lets Schwarzenegger or Trench get the upper hand here where Trench says, I don't need the money so he can have this job. Let's get down to business, see who wants to work. You ever hear of an island called Valena? No. Yeah. It's a little island in the Gulf. That's right. You should read more. Thanks. There are resources on that island that my people are very interested in. But a general by the name of Gaza has overthrown the Havas government. That's right. My people are having a problem with this fanatic Gaza. So you want Gaza gone? I want him dead. Or he takes his little army. Only an idiot would do this job. How much? No, like I said. But he also shows that Trench is more aware of what's going on globally because he knows of the, the island. He knows of Elena. It's a great scene for Schwarzenegger because it completely exposes Barney as like being unprepared and also needing the money. Yeah, you could argue that this just shows that Sly's team, or sorry, Barney Ross's team, has been doing things for the money as of late, that they're not involved with the world affairs, or just involved who's the highest bidder. Whereas Trench's character might already kind of be on the moral high ground. I, when this happened, I remember thinking, oh man, that was, you know, it was fun, but boy, that's too quick, you know, because I knew he was still governor at the time. Was he not still governor at the time? Yeah, he, and, he, the and he had to do it for free. Because as governor, I don't think he can act in a film. So he had to do that for free. But anyways, but then we get Expendables 2 and 3, and we got a lot of Arnold. And I don't tire of it. I love Arnold. He's got a great charisma on screen. And who does I, I love Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's a great action star. Sly's a better actor, let's be honest, a better creator. But boy, Arnold's great on screen. He just fills it up, literally. And he's just got that voice and that persona on screen. It just it seems like a great guy. And... And so when we got Expendables 2 and 3, I admit, I loved the trench scenes. There's never a trench moment where I don't enjoy it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that in, in Expendables 1, Willis, Stallone, and Schwarzenegger were not all together. I think it was Sly and Willis and then Sly and Schwarzenegger. And then through creative editing, they... I'm confused who wasn't there because there was times where Sly... I, don't, I think Sly and Arnold weren't there. I think it was Sly and Willis were together for a, shot, for a, a filming day and then Schwarzenegger and Sly... I think you're right, Craig. Yeah, because okay. I remember hearing that too. And if if you if you really look at it and really want to break it down, yeah, there's some tricky editing there. Looks cool. You know, I was hoping for a Robert De Niro, Al Pacino first time on screen meeting. 
in that style. And I, I don't know, man. It was a little bit too silly, see, maybe? Maybe. They're two biggest action stars of all time coming together on screen for the first time. I don't know. I was hoping for something more than what we got. Well, I, then we get that in part two. And you get it in Escape, yeah, in escape yeah. Plan. You got it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Escape <laughs> Plan. That's the true. plan is more of what I was hoping for. So I guess we do get it. But in that moment, we didn't know what the future held. So it's a fair to feel that way in the moment. But we get in spades for part two, escape plan part one. Yeah. So. Yeah. But in a vacuum, I, I didn't like that it's scene a, as much. No, you're right. It's actually not a very strong scene. So. And the other problem is we all knew it was coming. Can you imagine if they had somehow kept that under wraps? And they should have. That was another thing that I was a little disappointed in. They spoiled that in the trailer. They should have kept that a secret because let's be honest. I think this film would have done just fine without them spoiling that in the trailer. Yeah, Box you don't office need wise, yeah. this would have been, if anything, that would have been like an extra little surprise, if you will. And well, and it would have um, given it probably good word of mouth, Sean, yeah. for surprise yeah. for the opening weekend, anyways, because people would have. And when, mm-hmm. yeah, and I remember seeing the trailer when they spoiled that scene. It was like, why? And I get it. Look, I, I get it. But on the other hand, it was like, why would you? Why would it's you spoil tough, that? You know? They probably had that very same discussion. Like, do we spoil it? Knowing, telling people that Arnold is in the film to get a couple Arnold butts in the seat. So it's yeah. Can you imagine putting out eight fifty as an Arnold fan and being like, okay, I got my thirty five seconds, you know, and then leaving. Well, I, I can't imagine there's too many Arnold fans that can't stand Statham and Sly films. Like you gotta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That diagram is pretty deep on that one. Yeah. Oh boy, Sven diagram coming up again. It was almost like mentioning that uh, Doug's a cop in every episode. Check, <laughs> Check that box. Is the only one. major sequence that we haven't talked about the uh, the big car chase scene? We'll mention that truck scene. That's a great scene. So going back to Sean's early comments regarding Randy, what did you think of his ear talk monologue? Toll Road, when's the last time you saw your analyst? This morning. Yeah, what'd you talk about? Avoidant personality disorder. You think too much. You know, Troll Road, you're a great guy, little f***ed up, no doubt about it. And you're always going to have unusual problems, right? Yeah. You're talking about my ear. Oh, come on, don't start with the ear again, the not ear the ear story. story. No, again, we all know the ear story. We don't want to hear the ear story. We all know I wrestled in college. Right. Common injury associated with that sport is trauma to the ear. A clot, which if left unattended, causes a contraction in the cartilage and forms cauliflower ears. My college roommate used to bring up my ear configuration all the time. Parties, social events, you name it. That didn't really bother me all that much because he's usually bragging about how my ears are a badge of courage. Made me a little less self-conscious. Of course it would. But that was short-lived. One morning during spring break, I hear him on the phone bagging on me, talking about my queer ear. (laughs) You see something funny? Sorry, go ahead. So I realized I'd become the brunt of a joke simply because I look a little bit different. Mm. So I decided to educate my roommate on the common decency that should be afforded people who look a little different. I smashed him upside his goddamn head several times until he had a little cluster of cauliflower all his own. And your point is? It ain't easy being green. That was like the most we've ever heard him speak as an actor or in these films, I was like, I forgot. Holy, he's talking a lot here. He's going on about this ear in this scene. You could tell he's reading a cue card. Oh, yeah. Whatever angle he's looking at, he's talking to the group. But whatever he's looking at, it's a cue card. There's no way this guy memorized that dialogue. I'm telling you right now. It was like a weird character trait they wanted to give him that like he was 
insecure about his ear, and there's really no payoff for it. It's, no, it's, yeah, it was it's weird. Seems shoehorned I, in just to explain that a guy who, who doesn't know what cauliflower ears are. Well, you'll be surprised, in. but pro- yeah. there's a bit of art and art, uh, art and life, life and art saying, hey, we should let the audience know this guy's deformed. <laughs> or, it was or, shoehorned in because I think it was their way of saying Randy Couture is a mixed martial artist fighter with experience in wrestling. You know, in case you guys didn't know, again, going, bang, going along with what I said earlier about this being meta. I feel like that was like the most meta thing they, they could have done. I mean, they could have said, hey, remember uh, before we picked you up for the Expendables, you were fighting in the octagon. They could have said, (laughs) you know, that was their attempt at uh, at humor. Truck scene there, uh, Craig. What you the uh, truck chase scene? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just another great sequence uh, in this film. You know, it kind of hits all the boxes of terms of of action sequences. You know, you've got hand to hand stuff that goes on. You've got the big explosions that go on. You've got all the gunfighting that goes on. And then you've got a, a pretty decent chase as well through um, through the streets of New Orleans. I was cringing um, every time the truck took damage. Like, oh, it's a nice looking truck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I still had, had they, what, they make three for the film? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I know that those were all replicas. I think it was based on a what a Ford from the 1950s, I believe. You know what it was a nod um, to? It must have been. Was the 1955 Ford F100? So. There you mm-hmm. go. I think it was a nod to the Cobra mm-hmm. car chase. I, I was thinking that during the um, chase, but, but yeah, I love that sequence. For, for the sound editing in that sequence is amazing. The way that truck sounds and the whole like I don't know what it is, but the, the sound editing. I, I know I'm full of it today, Doug. Jeez. <laughs> right. No, no, but but but, but, but again, describing his favorite action scenes. But again, I don't know how. Well, I'm trying to describe action scenes to an auditory podcast. I don't know. I'm sorry. It felt real again. It doesn't look like there's too much CGI trickery going on. Mm-hmm. And if you compare it to like the Fast and the Furious movies where you watch those movies oh. and they're great escape is they're great popcorn films. But you watch those movies and you can see when there's digital cars doing stuff. Right. Whereas here you're like, there's a truck being driven by a, a really, really good driver and Jet Li's in the back. The action star, they're called that for a reason because even the way Jet Li handles the weapon the way he shoots it this is cool i don't know how to describe it doug for this uh for this podcast <laughs> he was like he was like and he's like do <laughs> you know what i'm talking about those who've seen the film the, the way it was filmed slides direction again kudos to him mm-hmm. but the way he gently did that spring with the weapon stuff this is like that's an action star being able to make it look cool yeah, that's experience coming through. I mean, because you can boot camp any actor. We've seen that. Look at what they did with Keanu Reeves in the first Matrix, where I think if you go back and watch that now, you sort of see them just do it, handling it like a dance, if you will. And you counterpoint that with every action in this movie. These guys have been doing this for years. Mm-hmm. They've got the experience under their belt. They know how to handle weapons and they know how to use their bodies. Good point. Uh, that's the one thing that I think kind of gets lost on or is, is sad about sort of losing action stars, if you will, is you can train anybody to do anything and get around it with bullshit, quick cutting and stuff. But like here, you've got guys that can all execute something that we're we're losing. This movie's a great showcase for it. Sean, I want, because you are here as our guest host from your Dolph Lundgren podcast, I Must Break This Podcast. Every time I talk about your podcast, I always call it I Must Break This Podcast Podcast because 
the title of the podcast is I Must Break This Podcast, but it's a podcast. So you have to say I Must Break This Podcast podcast. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> it took me forever to come up with a title. Too, I love by it. The way. I love I it. I thought about it. But it seems like – and I, that was like my last resort because I just couldn't come up with it. And it It's the hardest like thing. And, and, and it seems like everybody <laughs> digs it to be honest. So – and I'm, I'm 60 – Six episodes in, or whatever. So That's awesome. Got to keep going. Now, before we close up this, I want to get your final thoughts on Dolph's overall performance in this film. And I'm actually, before you do, I want to give my two bits. My two bits is this isn't taking it away from Dolph; it's, it's not his fault. But his character development in this film is really kind of frustrating. It's a weird. It is okay. It is the other two films. It's fine because we just know that he's part of the team. But I'm actually legit confused when he attacked Jet Li's character, size character in that truck scene that we just talked about. Was his intention to actually kill them? I'm actually confused. Did he actually want them dead? And what was the redemption? I how did he get redeemed to get let back in the team? He he gave Sly the layout of the villain's lair at the end of the movie. Who sent Gunner? Well, Gunner was working with them at that point because isn't there? Oh yeah, yeah. Where... Okay. He was hired by uh, Eric Roberts because he used mm-hmm. to be one of them, okay. and he wanted a hundred grand. So Gunner legitimately left the team, and his intention was, I'm going to kill. Barney and, and okay, but Barney's very forgiving, I guess. Yeah, Dolph was he was going to be killed in the film, and he signed on for it. He was totally fine with it. I mean, Dolph has been killed in a ton of movies, so <laughs> he, he was totally fine with it. And the reaction to his casting was so huge on the oh. internet. I mean, if you go back this far, it's really kind of fascinating to think about it. But back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Movie journalism, this film was at the forefront of movie journalism. And I mean, there there was a ton of set reports and everything like that. The buzz regarding his casting was so huge and so big. Kind of like what you said earlier, Doug. I think Stallone was kind of like, hey, wait a minute. There is a potential franchise here. If everyone likes Dolph's inclusion in this, I'm going to keep him uh, on board. But like you said, Ryan, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, call me crazy, okay? Okay, if one of you guys went out to kill me, you know what? I don't think I'd want to be friends with you again. Call me crazy. So, or let alone, uh, or let alone entrust your uh, my life in your hands in these very dangerous missions. I mean, it's referenced that he's got some kind of drug problem, mm-hmm. but they didn't really showcase it anywhere near enough. And I think Barney's able to realize that it wasn't Gunner doing it; it was the drugs or, or whatever substance abuse problem that Gunner had. And I guess he knew. The gunner before addiction. I think he was able to forgive that. Yeah, you, know? you could argue that because really yeah, because yeah. even he seemed pained. Like when, even when he shot Gunner, no, it's an action movie. It was actually good acting on Sly's part there, where he seemed pained by having to shoot him. He throws his hand to the ground. And he's yeah, like, this guy is a troubled guy, but it's, so he's obviously got a soft spot for the Gunner character and there's history there that we don't see in the film obviously so yeah that's fair i think that would have been service better as a series kind of like what i said earlier right, you know right. i mean the fact that they had a history this whole concept probably would have been serviced better instead of doing three films if it would have been a television series then they could have really gone back and fleshed out those relationships and everything i'd say mainly amazon if you look at the programming that amazon's been doing they've got the boys which is Ultra, ultra violent, really great storytelling. They've got Bosch. If Sly was developing Expendables in 2018 instead of 2008 or whatever, who knows? We, he might have gone to Amazon and gone to series. Definitely. And, 
it's something that probably would have been really, really cool. That yeah. was a question brought up by uh, Drew in our chat. He's like, whatever happened to that television series? I think it was talked about. That's classic Sly. He loves talking about shit he's never going to do. <laughs> what? Yeah, where's the zombie squad Netflix show <laughs> that nobody wants? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love well, it. one person. One person I could think of. Desperately. I picked up. I picked up a paper ga- a paperback copy of that book that he's been talking about for years called Hunter. I've read it. Yeah. I've read it. Yeah. And I thought about reading it, but then I was like, eh, who knows when it's going to get made? It'll continue sitting in my garage. But you've read it. Is it good? I read it back in the '90s when it was talked about. <laughs> well, that was supposed to be Rambo Five. Yeah. When he first bought the book, I swore I read it in the 90s, if not early 2000s, but it was a long time ago. When he first bought the rights to – this is like pre-internet because I think I read about this in an entertainment magazine. Yeah, yeah. That, that Stallone was going to star in this Hunter. When I read the book, I envisioned the movie in my mind when I was reading the book those many years ago, and it was not a ramble film. It purchased the book to be this Hunter dude. And I remember thinking then, oh, he's kind of getting a little bit long in the tooth to be this character in the book. But anyways, there you go. Yeah. No, after Rambo 4 – he did, a, I think, one of those Q&As he did for Ain't It Cool News. And I remember an audio clip that they put on the website where Sly was talking about Rambo 5. And he said it's going to go in a different direction yep. than people that are fans of the series are used to. He sort of described Hunter where, you know, it's it's Rambo versus, you know, this uh, genetically engineered beast. Right. And I was like, Sly, don't. Do this to Rambo, you know. You might as well take him to space next. Yeah. Um, and we got Last Blood, which we got Last Blood, which isn't much better. One of those things that he's he's held on to for years, and I doubt it'll ever get developed as anything. Yeah. All right, Doug. Any closing thoughts on the film overall? Overall, I like it. I think it's the it shows up the most out of the three that we've watched. Not that they should have done sequels, but I really wish the sequels would have lived up more to the original. Because it, it could go down as one of the greatest action franchises of all time. But it's so fun. All three have something to it's offer. So fun. Even, the th- yes. even the third one with Mel Gibson, we talked about that. And there's something to be said for you. you, you I don't think you'd watch any of the expendable films and go on board. You're going to have fun watching any of them. But I think the first one does showcase a little bit of that grittiness, combined with the humor, combined with the great aesthetic look. It has a great aesthetic look that the other two just didn't have. And I think we can credit Sly for that. Definitely love it, though. Good action film. Sly is at his best when he's got something to prove. You know, we've seen it when he did Rocky Balboa. We saw it when he did, you know, the fourth Rambo film. And The Expendables is another sort of, I would put that on the same level in terms of Sly being focused and saying, okay, I've promised that I'm going to sort of do this return to action that Rambo sort of really set up. I remember seeing Rambo in theaters and being like, I can't remember the last time I sat in a movie theater and saw this level of filmmaking from an action standpoint. Sly rose to the occasion. This movie has its problems that we kind of pointed out. At the end of the day, it delivers exactly what it was supposed to deliver. When I was watching it yesterday, I was like, man, I can't wait to sit down and talk about this because after watching two and three, I kind of forgot how solid of an action movie this one was. No, it was an interesting way of doing it. I think I like that we did it in that order, two, three, then one. Sean, before, closing thoughts on the film, please plug your show. But before you plug your show, I just want to say 
Great job on your podcast, great episodes, great discussion about Dolph's filmography. And you've had some great guests who've worked on Dolph's films on your podcast, and that should be acknowledged. I don't think you would acknowledge that yourself, so let me do that for you, that you've had some incredible guests on your on your podcast in the Dolph world. So if anyone listening to this podcast, this is the one right now that we're listening to, it does not follow Sean on his podcast. It likes Dolph Lundgren at the very least. My goodness, uh, Sean, you are the torch-carrying king of the Dolph Lundgren podcast world. So, Hey, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. With regard to this film, I mean, look, this is quintessential Dolph viewing. In addition to this being just a fun throwback love letter to action films of the 80s and the 90s, this was Dolph's comeback. I mean, he's had multiple comebacks over the years. I mean, but this was the film that uh, brought him back on the big screen, which, I mean, if you had been following his career and seen him premiering his movies on the shelves of Blockbuster, to see him back on the big screen was was really cool to see, was really pretty special. So I think for that reason alone, minor quibbles aside, this film definitely gets a recommend. Yeah, thank you for the shout out. The, the podcast is I Must Break this podcast and uh, yeah we go in chronological order uh reviewing all of all of Dolph's films and in between the movie review episodes I'm fortunate to have an interview episode and I've uh, I've really been blessed because I've gotten to speak with directors and writers and actors I even got to speak with Dolph's stunt double in fact the expendables Tony Messenger who did a lot of the stunts for Dolph Lundgren I got to speak with him in a previous episode so it's pretty cool so thank you for the plug it's I must break this podcast and we're on iTunes Stitcher and all the podcasting apps all right that's awesome thank you everyone that's joined us joined us live and are listening to this right now on your earbuds check out again the, the, our individual shows on this feed slidecast going the distance and rocky minute can be enjoyed on this same feed and check out sean's podcast we'll talk to everyone later